the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what is going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. Tom, I haven't um, had you do this in a while, so let's do it as we are very much on the eve of the holiest time of our church year. What are the principles of Catholic social teaching? Sure. Well, Monsignor, the very first principle is the life and the dignity of the human person, uh, which means that we are all, each and every one of us across the world, made in the image and likeness of God, and that dignity is inalienable. It means it's given by God as grace, and, and, and we cannot lose it no matter what we do. So that's the very first one. And the second one, um, which was also a way of saying human life is sacred. And the second one, senior, is connected to that. It's the call to family, community, and participation, which recognizes that not only is human life sacred, but it's also inherently social. Because when we grow up, we grow up within families. Families live within communities, and communities live within neighborhoods, and neighborhoods live within states and countries, et cetera. So we all are social creatures. Uh, and there is a recognition of that in Catholic social teaching, and there are certain obligations and that we have regarding that. And that brings us to the next one, which is rights and responsibilities. As I mentioned, because we are social creatures, we have obligations to one another uh, to care for each other, uh, as God calls us to. But we also have rights. You know, we have because we're created in the image and likeness of God. That means there are certain guarantees that we have as human beings that we all have the right to food, the right to shelter the right to health care, the right to a job, you know, political rights, social rights. So we have all those rights too. Uh, and then the fourth, Monsignor, uh, kind of goes back to our biblical understanding of the world. And that's the option for the poor and the vulnerable, recognizing that throughout the, the, the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament and the, and the prophets of old, there was always concern about the widows and the orphans and the strangers among us, to Jesus himself when he talks about Matthew 25, the least of these we always have to be very mindful of caring for those on the margins, those on the on who are poor and vulnerable. So we always have to have an option for them. Uh, the fifth is uh, the dignity of work and rights of workers, Monsignor. And, and this, I always like to remind people that um, just as God is a worker, he worked those first six days <laughs> when he created the world. Uh, so we are called to work and be co-collaborators with God. Um, the sixth is solidarity. And solidarity is connected in a sense, when you wind up looking at it, that means that my neighbor is not only the person who lives across the street, but also the person who lives across the world and our concern has to extend to them. And the last one, Monsignor, as you know, is the one that you always tease me is my favorite, (laughs) which is care of God's creation, which just reminds us that God has given us the world to be stewards of the world, not owners of the world. So we are called to care for creation as we would a gift. And that's that's the summation of it. Hey, Tom, you did that great. (laughs) You know, that is just a very clear um, kind of presentation of, you know, what we're about in Just Love. We're taking those values and we're kind of saying, um, how does this topic, how does this issue kind of relate to some of those values? And um, it's going to, you know, our next guest is um, we're going to speak about the death penalty, which has to do with that basically the sanctity of of human life. Hey, you know, Tom, a little bit later in the show, remind me, 
ask me about the dignity of work because I learned something which really surprised me about um, about work in in South Korea. So anyway, I will um, do that with you. <laughs> so our first guest is Richard Dieter, who is the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. And um, Mr. Dieter, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. My pleasure. Thank you. Great. So um, I think the title of the organization is pretty self-explanatory. I guess you gather information on the death penalty. Am I correct? That's right. We were formed to uh, educate the public about how the death penalty works in practice. I think there was a lot of uh, two-sided arguments about the uh, theoretical application of the death penalty, but we wanted to talk about uh, whether it's fair or whether it's uh, people are adequately represented, other chances of of mistakes and things like that. And that's what we've focused on in over the past uh, decades, I guess. Now, so if somebody were <clears throat> kind of coming to you and saying, "All right, so so tell me the what's the basic, what's the what's the quick fact sheet that you or the primer that you kind of would share with." somebody who was interested and didn't know a lot about the death penalty, but you want to give them the basics, give our listeners the basics. Yeah, I mean, basically, the death penalty has not been working in the United States. It's been a a failure on a lot of levels. Uh, One is that it's been revealed that mistakes have been made, that innocent people have been sentenced to death, and not just a couple, but, but more like over 100. And and those people weren't executed, but they came very close. And then there were other problems, like the 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 application is arbitrary. You can you know predict more uh, whether you're going to get the death penalty if if you look at which state you're in, not not whether your crime was worse than the others. And if you killed a white person, that's more likely to result in a death sentence than if you killed the black person. These these kinds of problems, I think, have have reached a, a crescendo. And what we're seeing now is a decline in the use of the death penalty so that it, if it ever made sense, it doesn't anymore to have, you know, a handful of executions of some poor folks who just, you know, were the ones chosen out of, out of a vast number of, of crimes uh, sends no message at all other than perhaps a political message. So, again, to give, give me a little bit of a broad, broad landscape, um, I mean, we got we got a couple hundred countries in the world, something like that. How many of them do, as a form of punishment, have the death penalty? Well, it is, yeah. It's it's, it's over. It's close to about two hundred countries in the world right. that have the death penalty, or excuse me, that are in the world, and about one hundred and forty of those uh, have uh, stopped the death penalty either by abolishing it in their law or by not practicing it in the last ten years. Okay. Uh, the United States is not uh, one of those. We we have continued to use it, uh, as has uh, you know Iran and China and other countries that maybe we wouldn't want to be uh, linked up with. But that's it's a small group. Now some of those countries are large, but uh, but they are not the leaders in human rights. I would say. So uh, again, just to give me and our listeners a sense of the the playing field, let's just say last year, for example, how many executions were there by the death penalty in the world? Well, I, we don't know exactly how many were in the world because China doesn't tell anything. Uh, we, we we expect well, that, that. You can just stop there. China doesn't tell anything about anything. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I mean, the numbers are, are like, you know, maybe a thousand, maybe 10,000. So, you know, and they so much contribute to uh, the no, the total in the world. But, uh, you know, if, if, if you want to, at least we can count the United States. And, okay. and in the U.S. last year, there were 18 executions. Okay. And, you know, unfortunately, there were about 20,000 murders in, in the United States in, in, in an average year. Uh, so these 18 executions hardly made a ripple and maybe just a drop in a bucket uh, in, in terms of uh, affecting crime or, you know, giving retribution to the families or whatever, uh, you know, motivation you might want to attribute to. It doesn't make sense if, if it's 18 executions, 21 death sentences in the whole country uh, last year. And these are near record lows. The numbers are are not just, uh, you know, last year was kind of a fluke. No, it's it's been coming down since about the year 2000, uh, coming down like 90% down. <laughs> so it's it's not just a little trend. It's it's a uh, it's a rolling stone here. And so and is your like looking at things, you think it's going to continue to go down? I do. Uh, it, it's what's happening is that despite uh, sometimes the uh, political use of the death penalty as a sort of a badge of toughness, um, states have not, uh, you know, jumped back and and demanded more death penalty. Now, you know, there there is some efforts to to do that by by those. Not who, sure I want to. Not sure I want to move to Texas. <laughs> but even there, the the numbers of executions have has dropped considerably, and so now there used to be forty states uh, had the death penalty. Uh, there's now twenty seven that have it, and and of those twenty seven, there's only about five that use it regularly. So we're we're talking about a minority uh, within the country. Uh, you know that that actually use the death penalty. It's and even in those states, the numbers have come down drastically. So, you know, it, it's going to be a long time before Texas abolishes the death penalty, or Florida, or uh, Alabama. Um, but at some point, I think the U.S. Supreme Court has to look at this and says, "Well, this is unusual. The death penalty is not a national uh, a punishment that is used regularly in any way. It's it's unusual. Is it cruel? Well, it's, it's certainly the taking of human life without much reason for doing so." Uh, that that can be justified. So I, I you know, it, it might take a Supreme Court ruling, and that might take some years. <laughs> it might take states that are you know wedded to this just to say, well, it's not worth the the candle. I mean, it's not worth the cost that we're we're having to put up with. You know, those kind of practical reasons can can sway states, even if they were, uh, you know, committed to it as a as a crime process or, or hope hoping it would be a deterrent. So we're speaking with Richard Geeter, the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. Um, so what do you attribute it to, the, the decline? Well, that's a good question. And I've, I've wondered it myself, because when I started at the Death Penalty Information Center, the numbers were going up. That is, in the early 1990s, uh, executions reached about 100 in a year. Uh, death sentences were 300 in a year. And places like New York adopted the death penalty. Uh, Kansas, the federal government expanded it. And so it looked like the death penalty was was back with a vengeance. Uh, but I think what happened that really turned a lot of people around is the uh, exposing of so many innocent people who were, you know, almost executed, but for DNA, you know, or but for some new science development, or just because they had more time 
they were able to get more evidence that that eventually exonerated them. These are not people that, you know, some, uh, you know, they were still guilty, but uh, they got out. No, these are people whom all charges were dropped or they were acquitted uh, at a retrial. That opens up the argument, even for those who support the death penalty, they don't support it for innocent people, nobody, you know. And if you're going to prevent wrongful convictions, you have to look at other issues like quality of representation, racial bias, the costs, the the arbitrariness, what causes mistakes are now being addressed. And because of of the innocence issue, those issues were were problems before, but they didn't carry weight until innocence uh, kind of opened up the door. So I think that's, that's the biggest change. And it's partly, partly, you know, that's how society moves. We move not towards, hopefully, uh, a greater, uh, you know, violence and, and uh, vengeance, but towards more uh, restorative practices. I, I, you know, it's not always a, a smooth ride, but I, I think that's, it would, it's part of our, our development as a, as a people. So, I mean, you used a word, restorative, which is kind of, um, you know, one of the words to talk about a, you know, a, a correction system or criminal justice system or jails, prisons, that, my words, you, you're going to correct me, that don't see, seem to be primarily geared towards punishment or only punishment, but to restoring the person, making that person kind of whole. We might use the word rehab. Is that also a trend that you're you're seeing? It is. It, it's not one that you know we put our principal focus on, but more and more we, we see these things as connected. And and if you can execute people, then you can do a lot of other things that are seemingly less uh, serious because they're not the taking of life. So that you know there's there, there's a, a balance here. And I, I think, um, you know, the country has come to a, a reawakening, uh, if you will, about, about race discrimination. And that has looked, begun to look at over-incarceration, uh, treatment of those, uh, you know, who gets sent to prison. Of course, you know, the, the numbers are overwhelming. And, and I think rehabilitation has made a comeback. I mean, in the 60s, it used to be, that's why, you know, that's that, why we were... It, Prisoning people so that we could take time to rehabilitation, and then and then fell apart. You know, they just can't be changed. Was the you know because a few people got out and committed more crimes. It's so I think we're 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 back to being um, hopeful that uh, you know in the broader prison system, in the broader criminal justice system, uh, change can happen if people have a chance. They have to have maybe a chance for jobs. They have to have a chance for housing and and things, but they are not evil people. I mean, they're not, you know, there's the rare person who who just can't change at all. But I mean, I've met a lot of people who who used to be on death row and you wouldn't know them from any difference from your other uh, friends. I mean, they're people who are back in society, contributing, uh, thoughtful, uh, you know, and, and also trying to make change themselves. So, uh, you know, not everybody can be released, but I think we're, we're rethinking this probably on an economic basis, but also on a human rights and 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 for many people, a moral reasons uh, for doing so. So again, I, I know this is not 
exactly with the death penalty information, but I was in a conversation earlier this week. And um, one of the things that, that people almost unanimously kind of agreed on what that went wrong with our criminal justice system incarceration was a major piece of federal legislation in 1994, which provided much, much money for building jails. Um, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I was, uh, you know, involved in this this work at that time, too. So, uh, you know, I think that was a time of crime seemed to be rising. And, and you know, partly that's that's true today. But but then it really were, you know, across the board for, for a number of years and there was no pandemic. Um, and and some of it was attributed to, you know, super predators. There's these young people out there. Well, of course, a lot of them were people of color. And yeah, these laws got passed and the incarceration rates, you know, went put us on top of the whole world in terms of the numbers incarcerated. And uh, federal laws were expanded. The federal death penalty was expanded. It used to be for one kind of crime and it was expanded to 60 kinds of crimes where, where a death has occurred or even somewhere there wasn't. So uh, it was a time and, you know, some of the people who are reformists today were, were, were uh, you know, helping that. Uh, expansion of incarceration to grow. So I think that was a mistake. Uh, we, we maybe now are coming to realize that. Uh, and, and that's that's fueling, I think, a, a you know, the broader movement where you see prosecutors sometimes saying, you know, I'm not just going to try to get as many convictions as I can. I'm going to try to do justice. I, and I'm going to have an office in my uh, department which looks at old cases because some of them were done incorrectly. Well, that's a that's a different approach. It may not get you elected, but it, it is a, a breath of fresh air to to hear that sort of thing. Yeah, Richard Dieter, who is the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. So, <clears throat> given that you've followed this, given it seems that there is a trend towards fewer um, executions, um, where do you think things going? What as a society? What additional changes would you like to see us make? I mean, beyond the death penalty? <laughs> no, know, I mean, with regard within, to the death penalty. Well, what's, well yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question, too, because one uh, the, the, the one reason that I didn't mention for the decline in the, in the death penalty ex, executions and death sentencing is that the courts have said some people should be exempted. Juveniles should be exempted. People with mental disabilities, uh, intellectual disabilities, should be exempted. And but there's a broad class they've left out, and that's the severely mentally ill. Uh, people who, when they committed their crime, were really on a, a, a spectrum: severely mentally ill, meaning schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and things. Those are not excuses. But they certainly sh sh should have a role in whether those people get executed or not, whether they are, they are the most culpable. So a few states, Ohio and Kentucky were the first two, that have now said, no, we're going to exempt the severely mentally ill from the death penalty. Well, if, if we would begin to tackle that, I, I think it would, it would broaden our understanding of why crime is committed and, and, and why certain people seem to do such strange and violent things. So I think that's, that's a step that should be happening and more states are, are at least debating it, um, you know, and, and and then there is, uh, you know, providing better representation. That's 
you know, that's still a problem where we're, uh, those who get good lawyers don't get the death penalty. So got to, you know, level the playing field there. Prosecutors and, and defense attorneys get equal resources, things like that. These kinds of changes um, are, are not going to just sit there. They are part of, of what I think is, is um, a reexamination of the death penalty itself. Uh, so that's maybe further down the road. But these these are steps that if you're going to have it, you're going to have to make these changes. And when you make these changes, it it it, it tends to s- spread light on, on the whole problem of crime. And then we get a better understanding of how people can change and how how to make make differences in their lives early on so that they don't get into that kind of um, spiral. So those changes, then, you know, we might have the death penalty for a long time, but at least if it were more, if it were narrower, it would make, you know, trying to, I don't know, find the worst of the worst. Right now, it's not that. It's it's, it's very haphazard. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting what you sparked a memory of, of again, a meeting I was at earlier this week in which they were talking about not re, not the death penalty, but the closing of kind of the major jail in New York City, Rikers Island, and that. And it was reported that 50% of those who are incarcerated there uh, suffer from mental illness. Wow. And 22% from severe mental illness. And that that's what's filling at least that particular particular jail. and. Part of it has to do is that we've closed so many of the psychiatric hospitals that we don't have a place to care for those who are severely mentally ill. Yeah, yeah, the prisons are 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 his hospitalization or or, or treatment facility or whatever, and and they're not equipped for that. Um, they're not serving people very well either. When they do, you know, you just lock them up, and and the conditions tend to deteriorate because. People don't want to work there. And it's, it's, you know, and that's why I say, you know, if we looked at it on the death penalty level, it it might have effects across the board. And because, you know, the death penalty tends to shine a light on, on cases and you start reading about people, their case, you know, how, how, what were their lives like and uh, what led to this. And, and, and that, that's true of broader criminal justice as well. It's just that sometimes it takes a, a, you know, a high profile case to, to get to that kind of um, rethinking of, of, of what we're doing. Richard Dita, Executive Director, Death Penalty Information Center. Thank you for taking the time to be with us on Just Love today. Well, no, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for your work. And thank you for your work. Time, right. is time to take a break. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just. And it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Just love, just do it. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. As we get to the most holy part of our Christian calendar, Holy Week in the sacred Triduum, uh, we're going to look at, uh, take a look at a film about the journeys of Pope Francis, um, you know, in a very kind of um, very, very poignant way. Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, being acclaimed. And we know that what happens later that week is he's not acclaimed, but he is executed on, on the cross. So it's a strange type of journey, a journey that, you know, begins in triumph ends on the defeat of the cross. We know that the cross leads to the resurrection, but that is that is afterwards. That is on the third day, not the first day. I'm delighted that we have as our guest, Gianfranco Rossi, who is the director of the film In Viaggio, The Travels of Pope Francis. Um, Mr. Rossi, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love. It's a pleasure. Thank you to you. Good. So um, give our listeners a little bit about your background, about so that they know, I know they can't see you, but give us a sense of your background so that they know. I put on a, a radio voice? Yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> well, here I am. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Well, I have a background. Uh, I'm a filmmaker. I've been uh, studying at NYU when I was a young kid. Uh, when I was 21, 22, I did NYU film school. And, uh, and then my my way was uh, my path of the cross. <laughs> it was making film, <laughs> a sort of path of the cross. I made uh, I don't know how many films I made. Very few, eight films only. And uh, it, in this uh, the last journey for me, the last trip, the last travel was uh, the one I did with uh, on Pope Francis. Uh, it's called In Viaggio. And so the theme of, uh, of uh, the travel, of being in viaggio, it's always been in all my work, you know, for both men, because Sileo and Sicario, they all somehow um, approach them always with a, as a journey, always my work. And for the first time when I did the film uh, in viaggio, I was an observer because most of the footage that I use is based on uh, archival footage on the archival footage from the Vatican, which were more than 800 hours, and some uh, historical documents and some uh, fragments of cinema, including my own work uh, that I did in Lampedusa, which was the first trip of Pope Francis uh, outside the Vatican. And then the last trip was uh, when I did Nocturno, Pope Francis went to to Iraq, where I spent three years making my film uh, there, Nocturno. And somehow these two events uh, from Lampedusa to Nocturno, in the middle there was a trip that Pope Francis did in Mexico, in Juarez, where I did a film called uh, Sicario. These three moments somehow make me want to put together 
you know, this uh, journey embracing the 10 years of Pope Francis uh, traveling outside the wall of the Vatican. This for me was important to have uh, the idea of this Pope going outside the wall of the of the Vatican, almost like a, a, a pilgrimage. How do you say in English? Pellegrinaggio. Pilgrim. Pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. Uh, um, a sort of uh, contemporary pilgrimage. You know, before people used to go to the Vatican, now this Pope goes to the to the last of the world, the one we don't know, we don't want to to see, the one we turn our face around and we don't pretend they don't exist. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm old enough to remember that you know, in, when I was in grammar school. The big thing was the Pope never traveled anywhere, that he always stayed in the Vatican. And the first Pope, in my memory, who traveled any place was Pope Paul VI. Yes. A little bit why I remember that, because I was a teenager then, and he came to New York to talk to the United Nations. And But then after that, I mean, Pope John Paul II traveled many, many different places um, because he had such a long pontificate that he traveled lots of different places. And now Pope Francis, if you were kind of looking at things, how would you compare or would you compare the travels of Pope Francis with the travels of Pope John Paul II? Mm. Well, uh, I don't know. For me, um, this... uh, but when he travels, he has the need of encountering intimately the people, you know. There is a very strong connection that he creates. Uh, I was in the last trip uh, we did with the... Because this, this film is an open film. Right. It's, uh, although the film went to festival, to, it started in Venice, it's been distributed all over the world, from China to Japan, to United States, South America, Europe. Still, the film is an ongoing process, you know. It's like an open film. And, you know, the last shot of the film, we see the journalist waiting for the Pope on the plane uh, appearing, but there is a curtain moving there, and we don't know what's going to happen or who's going to come out from there. But for me, it's important to keep this film open, and hopefully, you know, one of the of the big, uh, of the most urgent message of this Pope is peace. And uh, I want to arrive uh, with this film to embrace the moment where the Pope will be a witness of this peace process, and I hope uh, soon this is going to happen, because otherwise we're going to be, as, Pope said, as the Pope said, either we are united or we're going to completely fall apart, you know. And this Pope is a Pope that somehow in his traveling, he gives constantly an awareness, uh, you know, an awareness of the theme that are important to him. The theme is, is almost unfolding uh, of the encyclique of the Pope, you know, and uh, of the book that he wrote, Fratelli Tutti. And uh, I, when I was editing the film, I was trying to follow the most important theme that the Pope is bringing us to our attention and to almost, uh, hopefully, to our awareness. Um, so the film somehow is a reflection uh, on this, uh, yeah, it is a portrait of the Pope, but it's also a reflection on our world, you know. Um, I wanted somehow the film uh, to trace uh, a map uh, of the of the human condition, you know. 
So we're speaking with Gianfranco Rossi, who is the director of the film In Viaggio, which is a documentary on the travels of Pope Francis. Um, I, now, you mentioned that you you yourself did travel on at least one or more of, of Pope Francis's trips. Yes, I went to first to Malta when the Pope uh, faced for the first time a public speech on the on this war and on war generally. And then I went to Canada with him when he went there, when he made the indigenous population uh, the victim of the resi residential houses uh, and he asked uh, forgiveness. He uses in that occasion very strong world, words. Uh, he say this was a cultural genocide, genocide committed by the colonial church. You know, This is very, very heavy word that he used as, uh, there. And I was uh, a witness that encounter. It was very emotional, very strong and very difficult, you know, to be there and to ask forgiveness. He made a very strong uh, uh, speech, very moving speech, knowing that not everybody was accepting these apologies, you know. And uh, and in the way in the film, I wanted to show that that was almost like, a, um, you know, I don't know if you remember in the scene, it's, I added this, like almost is happening in his own mind, you know, that didn't happen in reality this because I felt that like there was something still very suspended there. When I went to Canada, it was very important for me to be there because I discovered completely by chance this picture. I didn't know what it was, you know, when because of the residential houses, I didn't know what uh, was physically, you know, and then I, by chance I was in this school and uh, we were waiting for to go out uh, to, to, to encounter the Pope head. And in this break, I went around this um, gym of the school, and in a, in a wall, there were all these pictures uh, from the 30s, from the 20s, a uh, picture that were like propaganda, propaganda picture, very, very strong. And uh, I took uh, with my phone some picture, I sent it immediately to the, to the production company in Italy, and I say, I need to have access to this material. And the same evening, they told me that uh, they found the source and I had access to all this material, including some film of the time. So when I shot the next day, the speech of the Pope, I decided to put uh, all this out of focus in the film, you know, so it almost like blurry, like it was uh, to enter in his own mind. And uh, at the end of this, after this assemble of uh, pictures and material and footage, historical footage, uh, creating almost this human geography of this terrible moment. Um, at the end of all this editing, there is the Pope in meditation that I, I filmed him very much in silence. And the, in his mind, there is still the chant of the indigenous population, like almost to remind that this was still there on his mind, you know, that this was uh, something that was not completed, it was still suspended. So for me, it was very important that occasion to be there as much as was important when I was in uh, in uh, Malta, when he did this um, speech uh, about war, and I was able to be very close to him in that moment when he's uh, meditating inside, it was a, um, in a prayer. And and then at certain point, he stands up, very shaken. This is one of the last scenes of the film where you can feel these 10 years of uh, pontificate, how much weight 
he's carrying on his shoulder. And in a way, also how much solitude there is in this pope. Uh, um, he's a he's a pope that is a, I consider him a revolutionary. He's been trying to change a lot of things inside the church, but it's also a pope that is very much alone. You know. Uh, say a little bit more about that. Why do you say he is very much alone? Well, he has a lot of enemy within the Vatican and outside the Vatican. You know, not everybody is accepting the fact that he wants to change a confronting theme that for the church are taboo. You know, when he talks about uh, uh, gay couples, when he talks about... Uh, um, pedophilia when he talks about he's really open when he talks about the, the, the structure within the Vatican the, 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 the economic structure within the Vatican you know the, the waste of money that there is within that he's been trying these 10 years to change all of this and so this is like a, a structure that has like 2000 years of history and to be there in 10 years and try to change uh, this, uh, it's, a, it's a big effort. And uh, he puts all his will to do that. I met him a few days ago before, before coming to the States. Five days ago, I was uh, on the Vatican in a private meeting with him and the, my producers. We were seven people there. It was a wonderful encounter, very emotional, very open, very <laughs> funny. He has a very strong sense of humor. And um, before leaving, he looked at me and he say, risk, always risk, be courageous and risk. And then he came closer and said, there are too many conservative people around us. We are surrounded by too many conservatives. So always risk. Take a ah. chance of risking. And this, you know, from the Pope world, that there are too many conservatives around I think yeah. it was a very strong uh, message uh, that he tried to send. Okay. And in a way, you know, the film uh, is a tribute to the one that tried to change something in this world, you know, and this Pope is trying to change something. Um, then some people would say, okay, what does it change when he goes to Africa and talks to people? Well, I think it changed a lot when people see him and his presence gives a lot of uh, hope uh, to people. It's, one of his peculiarities, when you asked me what was the difference between this traveling, I saw him in Africa when he talks to more than a million people in this huge uh, field. He's, he looks like and uh, he sounds like he's talking to each of them individually. You know, uh, when was in uh, in Philippines after a hurricane, and he has this moment of encounter with the population there. It's so close, you know, it's so he, the way he touches people, the way he embraces people, the way he goes around in his pop mobile without protection. He's the first pop that is traveling without having a, a bulletproof uh, cabin in the pop mobile. He doesn't want to have that. So he put himself always in contact uh, with, the, with the people. You know? he, when he was able to walk, now it's difficult for him to walk. He was always stopping the car and coming and going down and talk to people and be with people like in Africa, like in Middle East, like in all these places. He's always able to, to have this physical and personal relationship with the population that he's encountering. We're speaking with Gianfranco Rossi, the director of the film, in Viaggio, the travels of Pope Francis. Um, let me ask you something which is not necessarily on the film, but you talked about your little private encounter with the Pope, which was a kind of a wonderful anecdote to share with our listeners. You know, he has, you know, as you said, 
Sometimes he gets um, maybe opposition within the Vatican because of some of the things he said about homosexuality, some of his statements with regard to that. And then sometimes people say, and I just, what's your reaction? But, you know, he's kind of expressed a great deal of openness to the gay community in a lot of ways. And yet he doesn't want the German bishops to bless homosexual kind of marriages. So like, how do, as a filmmaker, how do you kind of interpret those two things? Well, you know, he, he always say, who am I to judge, right? right. So he's open up to, to, to embrace this, but then uh, officialize a wedding, it would be a step that, you know, the church itself is not ready to do it, unfortunately. And, uh, but I think it, 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 it's a step that, you know, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Catholic. Yeah. And I see this Pope uh, as a as a strong reference also politically, you know, for me. It's, this is a Pope that's able to open up theme and uh, position in a very strong political way that no leader in this world are going to do that anymore, you know. Yeah. So I think... Uh, in a way, you know, we are living in a world that is uh, is a defeat. You know, it's a dehumanized world somehow. And the Pope always remind us uh, it's a shaky world, and uh, he always tried to warn us in taking certain position. You know, what's your position? The film starts uh, on uh, with a radar in Lampedusa, where the coast guard uh, is. Uh, is uh, capturing the sound of migrants that are, are sinking. And he said, please help, help. And the guy from the Coast Guard said, what's your position? What's your position? And he said, we don't know where we are. So what's your position? What's your... So the fear wants to open up to this, almost a metaphor for me, where it says, what's your position towards all the theme that this uh, Pope is... Uh, and when I talk about, about, about poverty, about solidarity, about inmates, about war, about the, the armed cells, you know, all these issues that uh, he's addressing with such a vigor, no political man can do. When he was in the Senate and he confronted that, it was extremely powerful speech that he made about the war when he said the people that are selling arms are the ones that their hands is uh, soaked on, on blood. And, uh, and when he say dreams, you know, a pop that say dreams, don't forget to dream, don't lose the ability of dreaming. Uh, this is a world that needs your dream. Even if we don't see this world, uh, but hope that one day this world that you're dreaming is coming up to us, you know. And and that for me is something extremely strong. When he talks to the to the bishops uh, about uh, um, pedophilia, that's an enormous statement that he does there. He said nobody is going to go any more free of that, and this is a promise that he made. And this is a battle that he's winning, that he's doing it, and that's created a lot of you know, everything before was in within the, the shades and, and the bubble of the church nobody would talk to outside and this pope is bringing all this theme out you know regarding a blessing i think of course i would love that he will arrive to do that but uh again we are discussing about 2000 years of 
of a very strong structure will probably will be very hard in that moment. But the fact that he already is opening up to the to to homosexual couple, I think, is a big step. You know, it's so, a first step. So, I, you have been so generous with your time and uh, and for documentary documenting those travels. Thank you so much for taking the time to being with us on Just Love this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thank you to you, and I hope people go to see the film uh, in uh, in theater. It's opening okay. thirty first, and this is a film I think that has to be seen and watched uh, in a movie theater. Great. We have to go back to the idea that we are smaller than <laughs> what we watch, you know. And uh, being in the cinema, there is this beautiful sense of being smaller than what we are watching. Good, Gianfranco Rossi, the director of the film in Viaggio, the travels of Pope Francis. Go see it. In the theater. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank Tom, you. I think we'll take a break. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. This is the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan.
do it. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Hey, Tom, you know, when you were articulating at the beginning of the show the principles of Catholic social teaching, and one of them is the dignity of work. Mm-hmm. I was listening to, uh, to to something on the radio the uh, while ago, and what do you think the work week is in Korea? Now, that's a little bit of a trick question, but what do you think, how do you think they write their labor laws? So how, how much can, they, can a person work each week? Uh, you mean per hours or days? Hours. Hours. I would say they could work. And again, this is just a shot. I have no clue. I'm going to say they work 60 hours a week. So here's the way it's written, okay? okay? I think the average work week is probably about 40 hours. Okay. Oh, okay. But, but a person currently can work up to 52 hours a week. Hmm. So they can work that much overtime, okay? Okay. And But the reason I bring it up and why it was in the news is because they want to change that so that a person can work now 69 hours a week. Wow. Okay. So 40 regular and then an additional, whatever it is, 29 hours that somebody could work. Now, one of the reasons why they were saying, and says, well, that's ridiculous, too much. People shouldn't work that much. Well, they don't have to. But the people in favor of it, mm-hmm. they argued you actually get more free time off. Now, here's where they argued. They argued that, so if you have to work a certain number of hours or whatever, okay, and you wanted to kind of stuff them all in to like one or two weeks, you could then take off a longer period of time if you wanted more time off. Oh, okay. So in other words... Like, if you work your 69 hours for like three or four weeks, if you could survive it. (laughs) But then you might have earned enough that you didn't have to work for three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Interesting notion. But the other thing which I picked up, they apparently have, they work so hard in so many ways that they need to nap. So they now have nap pods in, in, in stores so that, so that if for lunch, maybe you don't want to take lunch because uh-huh. you're too tired, you can go and you can rent for whatever it is, five bucks, 10 bucks for a half hour. One of these little nap pods, which uh, the way they were describing it, it's like, you know, one of those big, comfortable movie chairs or something oh, okay. like that, that goes back <laughs> and you can just go and put your headphones on there and just take a nap for for a half hour oh okay okay i was gonna te- i was gonna laugh from and say when you said the nap pod i was gonna say it probably is the size of my apartment <laughs> well it could be awesome no. so tom hey tom do you know how many square feet your apartment is my apartment i think is 425 425 okay so yeah. So I don't know if you saw, saw in the newspaper, one of the Hollywood stars just bought a studio apartment 
somewhere in Greenwich Village for with 400 square feet. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> now, so you read it and like they were, they were kind of touting the fact that, um, you know, he bought just such a little place and I don't know how much it was. It was, you know, maybe $300,000 or mm-hmm. something like that. And so I'm saying, boy, that's interesting. But, but as you go down the article, a couple of blocks away, he's got like a three bedroom oh. <laughs> condominium or something, which is probably, you know, 2000 square feet or something exactly. like that. So I don't know why he's got this place. Maybe, maybe this is his guest condo. Yeah, or for his clothes, his co- it's probably his closet, Monsignor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's uh, but it is um but it is is there. But it was kind of kind of a little bit quaint. But I was really intrigued by the Korea, the Korean yeah. situation about how what a I'll use a word, a work ethic that they re- really a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of work. And so um it's it's very very interesting um that the work is so constitutive of who we are as human beings that how that work gets organized in these days in the united states is it remote is it hybrid what or is it all in the office or what is it it really makes uh it, it really is an important factor of who we are when we when we live um so, Thomas, Holy Week is upon us. Are you doing your Pax Christi thing again this year? I am, Monsignor. Yep. I would say we're scheduled to go on Good Friday. Looking forward to it as every year. We're, and then, the, but the great thing, Monsignor, this year is we're doing it in person. So this is the first year we're doing it in person in three years. So, and I miss it because doing the Stations of the Cross on Zoom it just, it, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. You didn't get the experience of walking across the city and because you can kind of put yourself in, in the place of those people who were there at the first, you know, at, the, you know, on the first good Friday, when you're walking across the city, you couldn't quite do that on zoom once here. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit different. I mean, a little bit different. you know, I'm yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad. I mean, there are a lot, a lot of things that are now coming back to being in person again. My assessment is, but it is a little different. I mean, it mm-hmm. is a little different in a variety of different different ways, but there are many things that are that are kind of now back in in person, which I think is for the most part, I think it's it's good. And I think we are taking advantage of some of the positive stuff of Zoom. So anyway, to everybody out there, a very blessed holy week. I hope you do take the opportunity to participate in Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil. Uh, they are the, they celebrate the core mysteries of our faith. And so it's an opportunity to renew and deepen our belief and our experience of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. Our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.